say, as I look at the graduates today and see how nice they all look, and as I look in this graduate program and see how sharp they look in their nice graduation pictures, I have to laugh because I know that one day there's going to be a 12-year-old kid that maybe looks a lot like them that's going to be making fun of these very pictures. They're going to be saying, Mom, what in the world were you thinking with that hairdo? Or, Dad, what's up with the crazy suit? Uh, But it happens. Time changes some things. And to illustrate this, I found some pictures online of some celebrities uh, that you all may know. um, And I researched what their yearbook pictures looked like before they became famous. See if you recognize any of these celebrities here. This first one. I'll give you a hint, American Idol, this is indeed Ryan Seacrest. Yeah, Yeah, this next one, the hint here is he is a heartthrob, you ladies may know this guy, this is George Clooney. Now, I know what some of my high school girls are thinking right now, I need to be a little nicer to some of these middle school boys around here. Just in case, because you never know how things may pan out. This is a famous rapper, Eminem, of course. This next one the guys may be interested in, country music singer, Taylor Swift. This next one's very interesting, because I don't think he's changed a bit since his college days. This, of course, is our, our pastor, Dr. Wendell Eastup. No, no, no. This is not his, uh, his yearbook picture. I tried to get it, and I was told quickly that would be an impossibility for me to obtain. So I had a little fun on my computer. This is what I imagined it looked like. And before I show up at work tomorrow and my office is cleaned out, let me show you my college graduation picture. This is me, of course, with long blonde hair graduating college. So... Um, so time changes things. Some things change, and some of you guys, as, as good as you look right now, um, some people are going to laugh at this program. But although they may be laughing, I realize that when you look at this graduate program, for many of you, you'll always cherish it because it will remind you of memories that will last a lifetime. This graduate program is uh, particularly special for me this year because... These students in caps and gowns, our graduating high school seniors, are the very first sixth grade class that I had at First Baptist. And so for the past seven years, I've been doing my best to pour my life into them, and um, we certainly have a lot of great memories together. This is also the first opportunity, real opportunity, I have to gauge how well we as a ministry have done with our students. You see, our philosophy when we do ministry to middle schoolers and high schoolers is not to look at our sixth graders and say, what in the world are we going to do for the next seven years with these kids? But it's to look at our graduating seniors and to say, what do we want these seniors when they go off to college, what do we want them to look like? And the answer is we want them to be in love with Jesus Christ. We want Jesus to be the Lord of their life. So as we've partnered with parents over the past seven years and helped support the parents as they make disciples, 
This is the first time where I'm sitting back saying, all right, let's see how we've done. Let's see what this looks like. You know, I realize that our work is very serious. Dr. Richard Ross of Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, he has spent years compiling data from research that tracks students when they leave high school that are attending church growing up, attending church in high school, and when they go off to college, what happens to their faith? And he spent years compiling this data, and he told me just this past fall that he believes from looking at all the research, looking at all the data, he is comfortable saying that he thinks approximately 75% of Christian students leave the church in college. And only about half of them will come back at some point in their life. So statistically, if these numbers are correct, as I look at high school graduates, one-third of them, roughly, will leave the church when they graduate and will never come back. Hopefully our ministry and the time we've invested in them will cause those numbers not to be true here. But it leaves us asking the question, What do we do to reverse this? There's many things as a student ministry that we've implemented to do our best to reverse this trend. I believe there's some things as a church that we need to do. We've got to continue to pray for our children and student ministries. This church does such a wonderful job supporting us. Thank you. Continue to pray. You've heard the testimonies from Ashley and Jenny of what your prayer and investment means to their lives. Continue to pray for them. Support our children's minister. Eric Alfrey, I'm so thankful for him. He's one of the finest children's ministers I've ever seen. And he probably has one of the most important jobs on our staff in raising young people to know the Lord. We can also, as a church, connect students to the body at large. I think a temptation, especially for larger churches, is we get so specialized in our programming. And we have a a specialized ministry for, for this age group and for middle schoolers and for high schoolers and for college students and for singles. And we get so specialized in our ministry to students and the programming is really good. But a lot of times with high schoolers, they'll begin to identify with the student ministry as opposed to the body at large. And when they go off to college, they're not in youth group anymore. They're not in the youth ministry anymore. Their youth minister does not go to college with them, thank the Lord. And they're left because they don't have a youth ministry anymore. They're left not feeling connected or feeling a need to go plug into a church body. I'm so grateful that our pastor sees this. And we have, we're told as a staff, At 10.30 on Sunday mornings, I don't care how good your programs are, we come together as a body of believers, as families of all ages, and we worship God together. And Steve does such a wonderful job making sure there's something in the service with music and everything else for every age group, plugging them into the body of Christ. Here in a few weeks, uh, June 8th through 11th, We're partnering uh, children and student ministries to do our first ever First Baptist Family Camp. 
where all of the ministries of different ages are coming together for their summer camp experience. We're inviting parents to be a part of that. And then that Saturday, June 11th, we want to invite the whole church body to come out and be a part of a Camp Long Ridge in Ridgeway, South Carolina, of our day. This is another way we're trying to connect our students to the body at large. Also, as a church, we need to be intentional about specifically connecting students to the older generation of believers in our body. One of the greatest assets of First Baptist Church is our senior adult community. We have senior adults here that love the Lord and have walked with them such a long time. And I really, really need to be intentional always about connecting our students with our senior adults. Because you senior adults have such a rich faith and a rich history of walking with the Lord. And there's so much that you can pass on to this generation. I found out yesterday morning I got a call that my grandfather, 88 years old, Jay Powell from Sumter, longtime TV viewer, First Baptist, he passed away. This past week I took my family, my kids, and we went to see him. And on his deathbed he was having a hard time really breathing. He was having a hard time communicating at all. But as those children gathered around his bed, he mustered up enough breath to start singing with my kids, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. I'll never forget that. The faith the knowledge of Christ that he has passed on to my mom and then to me and now my children, I'll cherish forever. It's invaluable. We've got to connect our students to our senior adults. At our graduate lunch today, we're going to tell our students about an opportunity for senior adults to partner with them their first year in college to be a prayer mentor for them. What a wonderful, wonderful thing. So there's a lot that we can do as a church to help this. But ultimately... Students, it's up to you. It's up to you to decide if having a faith in Christ is important enough to be a lifelong commitment. In my farewell, really address to you guys today, there's a lot of things that you may expect to hear, especially those who haven't heard me. Some of you since sixth grade, I figured up, have heard over 500 lessons from me. Maybe you're so tired of it. You're so thankful you're graduating. But you've heard about everything it is I have to say. So what in the world would I tell you as a final advice, as a final word to you as you go off to college? What would I say that could even apply to these college graduates that are going into the workforce? And that could even apply to our body at large? Graduates may expect to hear because you can certainly read about it in books, even religious books. You've certainly heard other people say, now you're going off to college... You need to go, you need to work hard, you need to study, you need to have fun. But while you're at college, you need to make room for Christ there. Our college graduates, you've studied hard, you've found time to earn your degree, you've found time to be involved in civic organizations. You need to find time for Jesus. Let me tell you, that's terrible advice. That's horrible advice. For me to say, find a place for Jesus in your life, 
is horrible because the reality is Jesus doesn't want a place in our lives. He wants all of it. He doesn't want you to fit him into your plans. He wants to fit you into his. See, we're called students to belong to him. And don't take it from me. Check it out in the Bible. Paul says in Romans 1.6, And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. A lot of people boggle at this idea. Who does Jesus Christ think he is? God? Yes, he does think he's God. He is. That's just it. He is God and we are not. You may be in possession of your life, but you don't have a clear title. He's the rightful owner because he paid the price. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, You were bought or you were purchased at a price. Well, where did he pay it? He paid it on the cross. Well, how did he pay it? He paid it in blood. And now you're called to belong to him. To submit your whole life to him. Earlier this week, a pastor was in my office and he was talking to me um, about the idea of people compartmentalizing their lives. They'll say, now this is my spiritual life over here at church. This is where I do my business with God. Now over here is where I do my, my business, where I run my corporation, where I have my job. Over here is where my family lives. And this is where I do life with my family. And it makes us so comfortable not to mix the different areas of my lives. See, if we have God over here in an area, then we can come over here in our business and be dishonest. We can be a crook over here and we can come to church and be okay with it because we don't experience conviction over here because God's not allowed in this part of our life. Does that make any sense, students? But that is not the proper way to view life because God wants all of our life. We're called to give it all to Christ. I want to talk to you this morning about reasons we don't give our whole life to Christ. Reasons that Christ does not want a place in your life, but somehow we tend to do that. If you take your Bibles and look with me in Luke chapter 5. New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, chapter 5. While you turn there, we tell students, this has been big with our seniors, driving home the principle that your direction determines your destination. It's the direction of your life, wherever you're pointing your life, not your intentions, that determines your destination. So all the choices you make now in middle school, in high school, in college, those are pointing your life in the direction that you're going to end up. In this story in Luke chapter 5, we see the Lord Jesus helping some fishermen get their lives aimed in the right direction, students. Let's read this together. So it was, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he, Jesus, stood by the lake of Gennesaret 
and saw two boats standing by the lake. But the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. And when he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and he taught the multitudes from the boat. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, Launch out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and we've caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and to help them. And they came and they filled both of the boats so that both of them began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For when, for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So they had brought their boats to land, and they forsook all, and they followed him. I want us to look at three reasons we make a place for Christ. Three reasons we make a place for Christ. Students, if you would please take notes on this. You forget 80 to 85% of what you hear within 24 hours if you don't write it down. So let me encourage you to do that. It's just three points. Reasons we don't make, or reasons that we do make a place for Christ instead of giving Him at all. Number one, we don't see Christ for who He is. We don't see Christ for who He really is. We know that in John chapter 1, it records the first meeting between Jesus and Peter. The incident that takes place in our text happens about a year later. Peter, James, John, Andrew... They'd all met Jesus and they'd begun to follow him, but they were not yet completely committed to his mission. And this incident redirects their lives. So we see Jesus preaching in the region of Galilee. And he walks down to the Sea of Galilee and he sees two boats. And the crowds were pressing in all around him. They had seen him heal people who were sick. They'd seen him give sight to people who were blind. They had heard about him. They'd come from all over to see who this Jesus was all about. And as Jesus was preaching to them, the crowd started pressing in on him. You can imagine a Justin Bieber concert here. And the crowds are just literally taking him over. So he goes down on the lake shore and there's two boats there. And he walks up and gets in one of those boats, and it just happens to be Simon Peter's boat. And he says, let's push out. And so they push out into the shallow water. He does this to get away from the large crowds pressing in on him. He also does it, students that have been to the Sea of Galilee with me. He does this for the acoustical purposes on the water. It's like a first century uh, megaphone. But he also does it because he's about to Change Peter's life. And he gets through talking to the crowd and he turns around and he looks at Peter and he says, Peter, why don't you push out a little deeper into the deeper water? And when he does that, he says, Peter, why don't you throw your net over? So Peter does that. It says that there were so many fish 
filled the net that the nets began to break. Back at Pax Landing, where I grew up fishing, this would be called hitting the mother load. There were so many fish, he had to call another boat over, and when they drug the fish into both boats, both boats began to sink. And in the middle of this, Peter's realizing what's going on, and he drops the net, and he turns, and he looks at Jesus. Now, he had just said in verse 5, When Jesus said, drop your nets, he says, Master, we have toiled all night and have caught nothing. Peter refers to Jesus in verse 5 as master. The Greek word here refers to a respectful title to one in authority, but not the affirmation of deity. So he says, sir... One who I respect. Listen, I'm the fisherman here. And I've been out here all night doing my job. I can imagine as he starts to make this excuse, he's saying, who does this carpenter think he is? How about you make some furniture, let me do the fishing. But he says, because I respect you, I'm going to drop my net and see what happens. He sees what happens. Then all of a sudden, he becomes overcome in the midst of this miracle. And he looks at Jesus and he realizes he's looking at deity. And he realizes that deity sees him. He realizes that the one who can see the depths of the lake can see the depths of his heart. And he falls at his feet. And he says something really interesting. He's laying on Jesus' feet, literally his knees. And he tells him to get away from him. He says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He was looking at a holy God. And in that moment, he refers to him not just as sir, not just as someone I respect, but he refers to him The Greek word translated Lord means he to whom a person or thing belongs about which he has power of deciding. And it comes from the original Greek word that means supremacy. Peter now sees Jesus for who he is. When I was about 10 years old, my family took a summer vacation And we went to Epcot Center and Kennedy Space Center. And uh, as we were walking in, I was uh, a bit of a rambunctious kid that just liked to get into stuff. And as we're walking through Kennedy Space Center, I like to touch things, you know. And uh, it was horrible whenever you go into a gift store where it says if you break it, you buy it. My parents would just turn me around and we'd walk right back out. But we're walking through Kennedy Space Center and I'm touching things and I see a display with an astronaut, like mannequin suit, and a moon landscape, and a spacecraft right there. And I walk up to it, and I'm looking at the cool white suit with the backpack and the, the fish helmet visor thing on. And somehow in my mind, I feel like i got to take advantage of this. I have a need to fight this astronaut on the moon. 
So I start fighting him, and I'm like, come on, you big dummy, what you want, what you want? So I'm punching him a little bit, having fun. Until the real man inside that suit lunged at me, and I realized I was the dummy running away. We need a cleanup at the astronaut display, please, you know? But I learned a lesson there that has stuck with me ever since. Richard Ross says in his book on the supremacy of Christ, it's called Student Ministry and the Supremacy of Christ. He says that the core crisis in the church and the number one reason that students don't hold on to a faith in Christ is that they fail to realize the supremacy of Christ. We don't see him for who he really is. Who is Christ to you? Maybe to you he's a a handyman, a source of a quick fix. Maybe he's an EMT if you really get in over your heads. Maybe he's a personal trainer that you kind of keep on retainer. And when you need advice for doing life well, you can call him. Maybe he's a pharmacist that can dispense some quick fixes for your life. Maybe he's a mascot. One you can say, yes, I'm on his team. Yes, he makes me feel good. I'm going to cheer in his name. But yet when it's game time, he goes over on the sideline and the game is really about you. And what we fail to do is realize who Jesus really is. Colossians 1.18 reports that for God, the bottom line of every constellation he's created, the stunning climax of every facet of salvation he offers comes down to this. That in everything, Christ might have supremacy. Sometimes Christians properly profess that Jesus is the center of my life. Well, that's true and that's good. But the question is, which Jesus is at the center of your life? That's the issue. Is it the one whose glory enfolds my life and consumes my life and defines my life? Because he alone sums up my life in himself? Or is it just a little Jesus who rides in my pocket? Or my mascot? Or my homeboy? Do you see Jesus for who he really is? The second reason that we make a place for God is we don't understand true freedom. The idea of submitting your whole life to Christ seems to rob us of freedom. And freedom is the number one thing high school graduates are looking for. Can't wait to get out of the house. Get out for a number under mom and dad's rules. I can't wait to have freedom. Well, the misconception is that God is all about rules. When God created Adam and Eve, he only gave them one rule. He said, you can do whatever you want, but stay away from this one tree. Satan came along, tried to convince them that they were not absolutely free. And the premise for their disobedience is that rebellion leads to freedom. Well, the lesson they learn is that their rebellion actually cost them their freedom. They found this principle to be true that maximum freedom is found only under God's authority. Freedom is important, seniors. It's important to students and it's important to God. Jesus himself talked about freedom. He said he had come to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. He said that the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Paul said it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. 
the critical thing to understand is what kind of freedom this is. It's not something different than belonging to Christ. It is belonging to Christ. Second Peter 2.19 says, People are slaves to whatever has mastered them. And everyone is mastered either by his own sinful desires or by Christ. Those are the options. Students say, oh, I don't like boundaries. God's just a God of rules. God's just a God that wants to spoil my fun. A tennis player isn't free to play tennis if there's no baseline. A baseball player is not free to play baseball if there's no foul line. See, in athletics, there are some knots to maximize the game. Well, the same is true in life. God wants to protect you because he loves you. I realize that as a parent. I set forth boundaries for my own kids because I can see some things that they can't see. And because I love them dearly. The third reason we make a place for Christ is this. Is we don't own our own faith. We don't own our own faith. Peter was introduced to Christ in John chapter 1. His brother Andrew brought him to Christ and he told him, We have found the Messiah that is the Christ. And from that time until the time on the lake, Peter saw many evidences from Jesus. He saw leopards heal, a demon cast out of a man. His own mother-in-law was healed. But it's when Peter experienced the power of Christ in his life that he fell at the feet of Jesus and he called him Lord. And in verse 11, we see, So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and they followed him. Students, how real is your faith? Peter didn't forsake all for his brother's faith. His brother's faith did not devote him to the point of dying a martyr's death. When you go to college, it's not going to be your mama's faith or your pastor's faith or my faith that sustains you. It's going to be your faith. Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they said, oh, well, some say you're Elijah, some say you're this or that. And he looked at him and he said, who do you say that I am? And Peter was the one that spoke up and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Very soon in college, you're going to be told that there's many ways to God. Jesus said, I am the way the truth, and the life. And no man comes to Father but by me. You're going to hear some false accounts of the gospel that just aren't true. The gospel is this. We know God created everything good. But there is some bad news. Some people think God created evil. He didn't. The only way you get something bad is you take something good and you pervert it. Even Satan himself was created good and chose to do his own thing. God made us the chief good, the jewel of his creation. We were made in the image of God, but from the very beginning, we ruined it. Not only did we ruin it, but we can't repair ourselves. 
Here's the good news. By all human reckoning, the situation is hopeless, but not by God's. There's a sin debt that needs to be paid for our sin. One that we could not afford. One that we don't meet the requirements of. But through His Son, Jesus Christ, He has offered every opportunity for our sins to be forgiven. Peter, for a long time, followed Jesus and respected Jesus and knew a lot about Jesus. But it wasn't until he responded in obedience and he said, yes, Lord, that he experienced Jesus. And Jesus went from being someone he respected to someone he walked away from his boat to commit his life to. Students, let me ask you today, who do you say that Jesus is? You've heard me say a lot to you and teach you a lot over the past seven years. The number one thing I can ask you as you leave, who do you say that Jesus is? Have you made a place in your life for him? Or have you committed your whole life to follow him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love us so much. God, that you provided a way for our sin debt to be paid. God, thank you that you love us so much. Lord, that you paid a debt that you didn't deserve because we deserved it and couldn't pay it. Lord, my heart breaks to think that there may be students here that when they graduate that they will walk away from the church and they'll walk away from you. Oh God, today, open their eyes. Let them see you for who you are. Let all of us see you for who you are. God, may we realize that freedom is found not apart from you, but freedom is found in you. May we own our faith. God, may we follow you in all that we do. May we believe that you indeed are great, that you indeed are good. And God, may even those words we sung as a child ring true in our life. Jesus loves me, this I know. Father, may these students go on to live lives that honor you. God, even for adults that are here today that maybe have followed you for years, maybe even today they've realized that there's places in their life that they're making room for you and not submitting totally to you. Father, may we fall at your feet today. May we call you Lord. And may we embrace the freedom and the life that you want to give us. You have come that we may have life and that we may have it abundantly. In just a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to have a time of invitation. And as we do that, it's a time for you to respond to the Lord, however he may be working or calling in your life. The staff's going to be up front. There's deacons up here that will pray for you. I want to encourage students, parents, senior adults. If there's areas of your life you've never fully submitted and given to God, would you do that today? Maybe you need to encourage one of the graduates. Maybe you need to pray for them. Maybe you need to make First Baptist your church home. Let me encourage you to do that today. And Father, may we respond in obedience to your call on our lives. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Would you stand as we sing together?